listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Colorful, lyrical, textural. Julia Adolph's music has been described as alive with intention by The New Yorker. Colorful, mercurial, deftly orchestrated by The New York Times, and displaying a remarkable gift for sustaining a compelling musical narrative by Musical America. Current commissions include an orchestral work for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and a violin concerto for Gustavo Dudamel and the LA Philharmonic featuring concertmaster Martin Chalafour. Adolf's comic opera for all ages, A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears, based on the novel by Jules Pfeiffer with libretto by Stephanie Fleischmann, received initial workshops directed by Elkana Pulitzer at National Sawdust and Boston Court Pasadena in 2019. Well, uh, Julia, good to meet you, albeit like this. Um, uh, We're going to talk about uh, three of your pieces tonight. And I wanted to start off with your uh, viola concerto, um, Unearth Release. And we're going to be hearing uh, just the first movement of that, but um, the the other movements are available on your website, right? Yes. Yeah. So... um, if you like this first movement, go check out the rest <laughs> of it. Um, but anyway, the uh, th- this first movement is called Captive Voices. And uh, the other movements are titled Surface Tension and Embracing Mist. So what is the story behind this work? Like, how did it come to be? So uh, the Viola Concerto was a very important piece for me creatively in, in my career because it was really my first big commission. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was from the New York Philharmonic as a result of this competition with the American Composers Orchestra earshot. Uh, So in a way, I kind of channeled a lot of my anxiety that I felt around writing the piece into the piece itself. Um, And the piece is kind of about this self-doubt and um, internal emotional anguish that kind of spirals and builds and grows. So the idea of captive voices is that it's kind of the voices in your head that are maybe berating you or um, bombarding you in some way. And um, musically, I was thinking about, of course, you know, when you write a concerto, you're thinking about what is special about the instrument and the performer, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the soloist's relationship to the orchestra. So the viola, of course, poses a lot of unusual challenges. Yeah. (laughs) um, (laughs) Because the viola is, um, it's a very, it's a blending instrument. It's a very kind of warm, subtle instrument. And it's, you know, traditionally used to kind of be the intermediary between the brightness yeah. of the violin and the sort of depth of the cello. The, so when, the glue. The glue, yes. Yeah. And um, so featuring it um, physically and acoustically is a big challenge. That's why there's not a lot of viola concerti out there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, what I was trying to think about is sort of what, you know, the viola, I, I kind of liked this idea as the viola kind of being an underrepresented voice um, and thinking of, you know, identifying with the viola um, 
not that I particularly feel underrepresented, but ju- just in the, just in the sort of um, emotional sense of mm-hmm. feeling like you've been, um, you know, people are trying to squash you or silence you. And so right. the idea is that um, the viola is asserting her voice as a solo instrument in the face of the orchestra. And in the first movement, the orchestra, um, I would say, objects. <laughs> the orchestra is... Is a uh, is quite combative, and it's so, and it's how the viola kind of navigates her way. Um, I, you know, and I don't typically share kind of a story behind the piece. Um, I'm doing so now just because you asked, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but really, I kind of want, you know, that that's sort of my way in. But I want the audience to just sort of, um, you know, take the titles, which unearth release and captive voices, and kind of make of it what they will, because it, sure. it can be any any story, really. Well, I thought what you just said there about, you know, like uh, having having a voice that is trying to be squashed and, like you said, in the first move in the orchestra, is ca- ca- trying to do that squashing. But, you know, what you said about how the viola is, it's an instrument, you know, it doesn't project as well as the violin. It blends in to the orchestra more than than the violin or say a wind instrument or anything. So I thought your treatment of the viola within the orchestral uh, setting was very was very apt and to the point of this, you know, the voice is trying to be squashed. Well, I'll just move over here. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're never it never seemed like the vo- the viola was competing out of like out of her elements. You know. Sure. It was it was done in such a way where it's like, okay, you can talk. I'm just going to wait till you're wait till you're done and then say my piece or or, or something like that. So I thought the way you did it actually kind of I I'm guessing it might have been for like practical reasons but yeah. it really speaks to the idea that you're that you started off with it seems like thanks yeah i mean if she tries to compete with the full orchestra or even with you know a f- full bloom cellos you know she's mm-hmm. not going to win so i yeah. so there is that practicality too of um making sure that the viola really shines and there's only a handful of specific colors that you can use in the orchestra to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like a very, like it's, it's uh, smart communication on the part (laughs) of the viola. So in your program notes, you mentioned ambiguity and I think you were tying it into the third movement, but I want to actually use that word ambiguity for this this particular movement i think your harmonic language could also be described as ambiguous in a really good way (laughs) um it kind of toes many different lines but never quite steps over Mm -hmm. and that gives the work a number of different colors that wouldn't necessarily be achieved if it if you win it all in on on say one thing you know um so i'm wondering what is your approach to pitch, melody, harmony, without giving away too many secrets, but, you know, maybe well, a few. I, I mean, there are no secrets. It's, it's, uh, it's mostly, I would call it bitonal, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of influenced, um, I would say heavily by Benjamin Britten, 
Um, also Bartok, Debussy, these are kind of the composers um, in terms of harmonic material, perhaps, that I think about. Um, my professor uh, at Cornell, Steve Stuckey, he used to kind of playfully call my music, he's like, that they had wrong note chords, which mm-hmm. basically is, you know, you have a, a triad, but then you you add a triad from a different key, right? So it's it's yeah. it's bitonal. Um, I would say it's also quite um, modal, um, and I think I I think just sort of my my Jewish heritage and um, like my love of folk music. Um, I think there's a lot of of maybe I don't know if you could call it bimodal, but maybe that would be mm-hmm. kind of more accurate because um, it it kind of moves modally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think a lot about counterpoint. Um, I think a lot about texture and color. And I think ambiguity is exciting because you're kind of blurring and blending your various influences. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think amb- ambiguity is exciting. Now, if you would have spoken to me 15 years ago, I would have been totally like, no, 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 it has to be one thing. And, you know, and I, and I think a lot of um, younger composers, whether they're on one side of the spectrum or the other, find that they they almost kind of find safety in that like, oh, okay, well, I'm doing set theory or I'm doing like, you know, extended tonality, like minimalist stuff or, or, or whatever, you know, it, it, it is safe because there's a process. But what you're doing is taking all of that and mixing it in a very personal way, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's like you're saying, it's that's becoming more and more the way music is moving. Um, I th- Another thing that Steve Stuckey um, said to me is that he and, you know, I studied with him when I was an undergraduate. So it was very, he, you know, he was very important. I mean, he's an, he, he was an incredible yeah. composer. Um, but also, you know, I studied with him during like my kind of most formative <laughs> years. Um, but he said that he was envious of um, composers my age because he said, um, you know, your generation is going to live in this world where, where set theory and minimalism and, um, you know, a tonal, you know, all of these different styles that were once discrete are now just tools in a toolbox. Exactly. And people yeah. are just going to go in and just, you know, smush them all together. I mean, he didn't say smush, but, you know, they're <laughs> going to put them all together and, um, you know, have, have your voice grow from there. And he just said that that was very freeing um, and that it was much harder to work that way when he was was coming of age as a composer. Before, you mentioned that you were concerned with color and texture. And I think there are those composers out there that would say they are only concerned with texture, with timbre, and that pitch is often taking a backseat or even like kicked out of the car. Um, <laughs> I think that this piece... And this first movement in particular is a beautiful example of kind of creating those intoxicating textures and still being driven by pitch relationships. 
but driven by harmony, by melody. Because at the end of the day, music is all of those things. And Mm -hmm. when I hear pieces with those like, oh my God, this texture is so amazing. I wish I could just live in it. And then I, and then you do live in it and then it suddenly becomes not so amazing anymore. Like it has to move. It has to go somewhere. It has to evolve. And uh, I think your this piece, and I mean, of the pieces I've heard of yours in general, I could make that statement, but this piece has all of that. It has those that that driving those driving pitch relationships but it also has these like really really fine textures well thanks i i mean i would i would maybe add to your statement that um it's more i think for me exciting art is about contrast Mm -hmm. so um i really you know there is music that is just textural that i that i really love and um I don't know if, you know, Takamitsu would fit into that, um, although he, he clearly thinks about pitch as well. Right. But, um, you know, music that really is about the color or the texture um, or, you know, George Crumb's music, I think, again, he, he has a lot of melody and lyrical line. But um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking in particular about like perhaps some some younger composers who are who are taking things like like uh textures you might get in Sariaho or mm-hmm. or uh I'm not coming up with anything else but it's or or like uh Ligeti or something sure. like that and then well, I think oh sorry go ahead and then they're just like that's the entire idea right you know whereas Sariaho moves Ligeti moves you know Right. Or like, you know, Andrew Norman, he has amazing textural pieces, but yes, they move and they definitely transform over time. So, yeah, I think for me, I I think a lot about contrast and story. And so all of my music is, um, you know, follows some kind of emotional narrative. So in that sense, you know, you will have that kind of arc that we are accustomed to in 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 a lot of art (laughs) (laughs) you know you man you you are just leading me to all the questions i uh i already wrote really really nicely oh good (laughs) i I don't i don't have to make weird transitions at all but you're talking about this emotional arc and you have this incredible moment um in the piece and it happens around nine minutes um and it like everything kind of goes away and it's just the solo viola and um uh it's like uh dee 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 that part and Ooh, that, do you have perfect pitch no no <laughs> i figured it out before <laughs> and i and i played it right before we got on so i've okay. been i've been singing it to myself knowing that i would have to sing it at some point <laughs> I, I know which moment you're talking about yeah. yeah so that seemed to me like it was the crux of the movement like all all lines point to here so Mm -hmm. what can you just talk about that like is it is that the the moment that we were leading towards it is the moment because it's well structurally for one it's after the large orchestral climax of the first Mm -hmm. movement and it's in that kind of you know (laughs) two-thirds cold and mean um point in terms of the the timing of the overall piece um and then dramatically 
it's really kind of this stripped down, exposed, very vulnerable moment where um, the viola is really, I mean, to me, it feels kind of like an exhale or maybe even like a cry. It's some kind of um, release, really, like to use the words of the title, um, where, you know, and there's sort of nothing that the viola can hide behind. Um, You know, there are other solo moments, but she's more, you know, like ricocheting or being more virtuosic. Um, And this moment is very, you know, still, very slow. Um, It's quite modal. Um, And it was honestly one of the scariest parts to write of the piece. And... Um, I was very, very, yeah, I was just very nervous to share it because there's just, there's nothing, yeah, like I was saying, there's nothing to hide behind. It's just very, um, it's very pure. And to me, it felt almost like a little bit like some of my older songwriting or pop music even. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of has this. It's just very exposed and raw. Um, And I was very afraid that it was too simple. Um, That there was not enough going on. Um, But I sort of trusted that... I understood that that's what the piece needed. Yeah. Um, And I think I tried a lot of different variations where it got more complicated and I noticed that it just kept getting worse kind of the more I added to it. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what made me say, okay, well, this is what's going to like, but the the art kind of guides you at a certain point, like the music tells you where it needs to go. Um, But I remember being very nervous about that section and... um, but also being excited about showcasing Cynthia Phelps's sound um, because she has an incredible sound and she has an incredible instrument. And that sort of that low C string, that's the bottom of her range. And that's yep. like, it's just such a gorgeous tone. And so I also wanted to have a moment that really showed that velvety texture that she has too. Yeah. I think you know, when you said like, it's what the piece needed. That's why it feels so good to me as a listener, because you're right. It's, it is what the piece needed, you know, or like maybe not specifically that, but it's like, it needed that feeling right then. And, and you hit it. Yeah, and it's also going back to it's it's the contrast that you need because yeah. it's it's building and building and it's getting more and more and more complicated and so at that point your your brain and your heart like kind of needs to rest and you need to have a moment where you exhale um so that you can move move forward with the piece. Yeah. Well, let's listen to it now. So again, this is the first movement of Unearth Release, and that movement is called Captive Voices. And we are going to hear the um, the New York Phil recording, right? Yes, conducted by Jav van Staden. And with Cynthia Phelps on viola.
Thank you.
Greetings all. My name is Andrew Martin Smith. I'm a co-owner of Adjective New Music LLC and a proud member of the Adjective Composers Collective. I hope that you're enjoying this week's episode of Lexical Tones. If you like what you hear, please feel free to check out the previous seasons of this podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Adjective New Music website, where we explore the wonderfully diverse world of individual creative musicians and the art of contemporary music making in the 21st century. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Andrea Rankenmeyer, performed by the University of Oregon Wind Ensemble, conducted by Dr. Rodney Dorsey, and the University Singers, directed by Dr. Sharon Paul. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Andrea Rankenmeyer's The Thaw. Thank you. 
We now return to this week's episode of Lexical Tones. Okay, so the next piece, you're writing an opera. You're giving us a sneak peek. Yes. (laughs) It's going to be called A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears. And we're going to hear a song called I Hate Everyone. So explanation, please. Like this... (laughs) Because we just came from something so sweet and tender to atonal comedy, really. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Oh, thanks. Well, um, okay, so A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears is... Um, a Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears is a novel by Jules Pfeiffer. And I read it as a kid. It's a children's book. Um, and... I discovered, well, my dad bought the book for me when I was about 10. And um, it was a coincidence that, you know, I grew up in New York City and Jules Pfeiffer, um, I guess his his granddaughter went to my school. Oh. And so he came and read at, this, at, my, at my elementary school. And I just remember um, being so excited because I, this was my favorite book. And um, I got to meet the author and hear him read from it. And he's, you know, I went up to him afterwards and he signed the book and everything. Um, And, (laughs) um, you know, when I actually, you know, I started writing music when I was around nine. And so when I was about 11, I started to write a musical um, that was Loosely inspired by this book. Mm -hmm. So my favorite aspect of A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears, is that there's, you know, the bad guy character, the antagonist, his name is Tom, and he walks in and out of the book. And um, he kind of, he doesn't like, he's supposed to be an incidental character, um, but he decides that he wants to be the protagonist Um, And so he keeps kind of barging in. And then, of course, you know, there's the actual protagonist in the book. It's a boy. And and in the opera, we're changing it to to a girl. Um, And so they are at odds, right? Because he's trying to be the hero of the story. Um, And he also kind of doesn't listen to any of the author's rules. So there's also a fight in the book between the author and the character. Um, And I just thought that this was... You know, as a 10-year-old, this was, like, mind-blowing. Right. <laughs> this is you know, fourth, uh, fourth wall-breaking surrealist, like, yeah. literature. <laughs> and, of course, you know, Jules Pfeiffer is known as as he's an incredible cartoonist. And uh-huh. so the drawings have also were just so engaging and funny. So this, this um, story was always in the back of my mind and very inspiring to me at a young age. Um, and then I think... It was about five years ago, maybe, I started to think about um, how fun it would be to turn it into an opera. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my first opera was quite dark, and I, I wrote the, the libretto, and um, I really, you know, was kind of, again, nervous to reach out to Jules Pfeiffer, and also, how, how am I going to find him? Um, but... You know, he's also, he's, gosh, he's 90, I think. Mm-hmm. So I was also thinking, like, I need I need to do this now. Like, I can't, yeah. I can't wait. Um, you know, I mean, thankfully, he's he's thriving. And um, 
I got to meet him and he's, he's incredible. Um, but yeah, so essentially I, uh, I did a Google search, Jules Pfeiffer email and his email address came up and (laughs) I thought like, there's no way this man is in his late eighties that like how, if, if this is real, am I going to, you know, is he even going to answer, (laughs) you know? Um, so, you know, after sort of delaying it for a while, I, I wrote an entire proposal and I just sent it to this email address. And he wrote me back the very next morning. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's he wrote awesome. me back the very next morning um, saying that he was thrilled to get my email and that he had been hoping someone would realize the dramatic potential of this piece. Um, and his other children's book, he only has two. His other one was actually in the process of being made into a musical, mm-hmm. um, which I actually I went to see the the workshop of of that musical. Um, anyway, so he was he was very excited. Of course, he wanted to see my music. Um, we had a whole back and forth, and essentially, um, he gave me the the rights to the piece to to adapt the story um, in twenty seventeen. Um, this is a, a long-winded answer to your question, but no, it's great. Um, so uh, you know, then I, at that point, I I had met um, librettist Stephanie Fleischman, who is an incredible librettist. Um, I met her at the Opera America conference, and we really hit it off. And um, she sent me a bunch of her libretti and various different styles. Um, you know, she also is a playwright and she's writing a novel and, you know, she's just very, um, very talented woman. And yeah, she was excited about the project. And so basically, um, we've been developing the story and, um, we had initial workshops at National Sawdust where I was composer in residence and we got support from, the Toolman Foundation and Opera America and some individual donors. So the opera does not have a like a home yet. It doesn't mm-hmm. have a a commissioning organization behind it yet. Um, so we're still, you know, exploring that and and still kind of exploring the content. But this recording is from that workshop at National Sawdust, and it is an aria sung by Tom, um, who is incredibly grumpy. And that's kind of his, that's the way he is always, right? He's just very angry, very, he's a curmudgeon. Um, And he is the only character in the book that doesn't change, um, which is interesting because they all go through quite dramatic evolution. But he, so his first line is, I hate everyone. And his last line is, I hate everyone. And... um, (laughs) He's given multiple opportunities to change, which he does not take. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we all have Toms in our lives. Um, and some of them named Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, in this scene, basically, he's kind of talking to himself, you know, because it's it's in that kind of fantasy world the opera is is supposed to be it's not um you know it's not a children's opera in that it's supposed to be for kids and adults so i like to call it a comic opera for all ages Mm -hmm. because as adults we do understand what tom is and and sort of 
how dangerous toms can be. But mm-hmm. um, for kids, it's 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 he's more of a like a comical figure. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's the the Looney Tunes bad guy that falls off the cliff. And, <laughs> um, so. And then, so you'll hear Tom singing. We have a wonderful bass baritone, uh, who actually named Tom. Uh, Thomas Chavon um, is singing. And then um, the woman singing the role of Izzy, Maggie Finnegan. She, um, one of the sort of fantastical constructs of the story is that she can change into different animals and objects. Mm-hmm. So, um in this scene, she is currently a frog, which is why you hear her ribbit a couple of times. Okay. <laughs> if you were wondering. Is and is is Izzy the is Izzy the protagonist? Like the actual is, pro- protagonist? Yeah, so Izzy okay. is the protagonist. She is this um, you know, she is tapped to be the next king of the land, but her problem is that if you're within 30 feet of her, you fall to the floor laughing. So she has this kind of like laughing curse on her that needs to be lifted before she can um, ascend the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, so she sent off on a quest without any directions. This is like very Fiferian. This is kind of how he thinks and it's yeah. it's really wonderful. But so so at this moment, she's a frog and Tom discovers her um, and she starts talking to him and that's what kind of freaks him out because he's never met a talking frog before. Right. And they, yeah, they interact with her as a frog. <laughs> so that's what's happening. <laughs> I th- do, do you know if this is the first instance of the phrase pinky swear being used in an opera? <laughs> I don't know. You have to ask Stephanie that. <laughs> I love that moment. The other thing I, I wanted to ask about did the the line stick a needle in your eye? Is that quoting the Russian national anthem? Oh gosh, you have to ask Stephanie. That's a definitely no, 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 no. Stephanie creation. No, no, no. The not not the line, the, the actual music that is sung to that. So apparently no. Oh no, gosh. <laughs> Did I accidentally put the Russian <laughs> It's it's close. I don't know if it's right on, but it's pretty close. Like it it just perked my ears up like, oh. Like uh, I I don't know like it, <laughs> it's, it's not a political statement. <laughs> that's fine. I mean I thought it was funny no matter uh, what it was. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, but that was that was that was interesting. Um, like I said, it's probably like it's probably pretty close. It's probably like a half step off or in either direction or something. But it was it was yeah. <laughs> anyway. So uh, let's listen to it. So this is I hate everyone. From A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears, which is your opera in progress. I hate everyone. I hate everyone. I hate everyone. I hate everyone. My landlady's a shrew. What's he doing here? I hate everyone. Everyone. I hate everyone, 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 everyone. I hate everyone. I stopped my toe on my way to work. I tripped up on a rake. Left lying on the garden path. Sailed straight into a mess of thorns. I heard. 
I hate everyone. I hate everyone. I wish hate everyone. I wish I'd never been born. I stop my talk today. I stop my talk today. My landlady's a shrew. My landlady's a shrew. <laughs> I've cut a bow, cut an arrow too. Gonna take aim and shoot whatever's in my way. Uh oh. Please, no, make him stop. Hey, mister, what are you doing here? Hey, you're still listening. Thank you. Do you want to stay connected with all of the happenings at Adjective New Music? Visit our website at adjectivenewmusic.com and join our mailing list today.
That's adjectivenewmusic.com. We're looking forward to sharing our exciting news with you. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Robert McClure, performed by pianist Lucas Wong. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Robert McClure's Avail. And now, let's continue this week's episode of Lexical Tones. Uh, before we talk about your last piece, I wanted to mention your uh, new YouTube series that you've started called uh, Loose Leaf Notebook. Uh, what is, you know, just tell us what this series is and what kind of drove you to start it. Yeah, so um, I think before the pandemic, I've always been interested in the connection between uh, mental health and creativity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, um, it's a very important topic and it's a topic that's not really explored in music school. Um, right. there are, there's of course a, a great community, um, looking at these issues now, um, outside specifically of the classical music world. And I'm, you know, I'm very influenced by, Writers and thinkers like Brene Brown, um, you know, the artist Sway, Pema Chodron, like this sort of, um, you know, this this mindfulness movement um, that's kind of, that's, 
you know, very, very popular and influential now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, I've created the series because I've just been looking for a way to connect with my my colleagues and my yeah. friends. That's sort of the, the first bare bones answer is that, you know, really talking to other artists, talking to my friends, talking to creative people who who I know and respect. Um, mm-hmm. That's just been keeping me hopeful and positive. Um, and so I've been trying to, you know, I, I think just people are craving, and I know I'm craving the connection that we don't get at concerts. You know, we don't. Yeah. Concerts is such a big part of our life and um, even rehearsals, you know, just sort of, I mean, the, that's one of the big struggles of the pandemic, right? That live connection is, is, is missing. And there's, so there's so much that non-musicians don't, don't realize about how much that is a big part of our lives. Like, you know, first you have the rehearsal, but you also have the, you know, the conversation while people are getting their instruments out and you have the walk to get the coffee after rehearsal and you have the post-concert hang. You have all of these things which Zoom just can't replace, you know. It doesn't. Have you you gone to any like Zoom concerts or virtual concerts? I have. And so it was partly in response to that because, you know, I think it's I think it's great what I mean, everyone is it's, trying something new. Yeah, and, and it's it's what we have right now. Like, that's, right. that's the only thing, so that has to be the thing. But I've found the live concerts, um, honestly, they make me kind of sad because mm-hmm. they feel, they just kind of remind me of what's what I'm missing out on, and it's yeah. just not the, the same thing. And so for me, I think, you know, the question I was asking myself, um, and I would say, yes, this question started with the pandemic. And then I would say it even became more strong in June with the, you know, reemergence of Black Lives Matter. And just this sort of question of like, what am I doing right now to contribute to the conversation of what it means to be human and what it means to be connected and emotional um and what are my specific strengths and weaknesses and what can I share that might help other people um so so it kind of evolved from that this kind of mesh of wanting to you know be connected to other people and provide other people with like also just sort of comfort and advice Mm -hmm. Um, and just to kind of keep just to try to honestly they're kind of videos almost for myself to to remind myself that it's okay and and that you know here are some ways that I have tried to stay creative that have worked here are some things that haven't worked and just knowing how much of a struggle it's been and feeling that if I can share what I've learned through my struggle and that helps someone else, that that's, you know, a very meaningful thing. And I'm starting to branch out to now doing interviews. So the first couple of episodes 
you know, it was just me talking, which I'm, I'm still going to do. And, you know, I purposely keep them under five minutes because I don't, you know, I think we're also kind of, you know, it's hard to just be on the computer all day. And, yeah. um, but the interviews have become more extended, but, but it is this question of, you know, what has the pandemic changed in us, but also what, what strengths did we maybe already have and learn as we were cultivating our art and our relationship to our mental health that are now we really need to rely on during the yeah. pandemic. Well, uh, for, there are a couple of things to say. First, you know, the, the things you're describing that you went through, you know, just like when the pandemic first hit and then it, when it got, you know, when it's, when it didn't get any better and is still not any better (laughs) is actually worse in many ways. Um, uh, you know, and, and how do you, as an artist, how do you get through that? You know, when you have so many external, um, things that are making you feel fearful or unsafe or, or whatever, like how do you still create art within that environment? Because you mentioned, I think in maybe your second one, like you have to feel vulnerable, but you also have to feel safe to be, to feel vulnerable, you know? Um, and I think a lot of the things you spoke about, I, I particularly felt at the beginning, but, um, and now it unfortunately just feels normal. Right. But for me, the beginning of the pandemic showed me that I was going to have to adapt um, very quickly to ways of working that I hadn't done since I was a student. You know, having like at, at this point in my life, my preferred method is to write in large chunks of time and just kind of disappear for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was I've been able to do that. Um previously because you know uh my kids were off with their grandparents for the like for a month or something like that so it's like okay this is my writing time i gotta go and i just do it but now you when the pandemic hit it was like oh i'm not gonna get that one during the summer and two i still have to write with three other people in the house making a lot of noise and my wife upstairs working, you know, still right. at work. Right. And we're both like full-time working, full-time parenting, full-time, yeah. like everything. So it was like, you know, it was being faced with like this physical impossibility for the way I used to work. And also having parental responsibilities that I wouldn't normally have at that time of year because they would be at school. Yeah. And suddenly, like I'm mourning the loss of my ability to be creative, but I'm also simultaneously feeling guilty for desiring it, Mm. you know, because it's like, Oh, because, you know, right at the beginning, you, you heard all this, like, uh, use this time. It's time with your family. Do this, do that. Be creative. And it's like, everyone's telling you what you should do with all this extra time. And you're like, I'm keeping my family alive. That's what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah. You know? So it, it, it was like th- there were a lot of, you know, a lot of competing things coming at you right at the beginning yes. of it. And I think most of us have kind of settled in to we found our way somehow, you know, but it was that it was really that guilt at the beginning for even wanting the time 
to to try and do this thing when you know that like there are other problems in the world. <laughs> right. And I think that's why it's important. That's why I feel it's important to connect this idea of cultivating your creativity to taking care of your mental health, because yeah. um, I think for 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 most people, but for creative people, especially they're very connected. Mm-hmm. So if you're not, you know, if you're not expressing yourself, if you're not, you know, playing, if you're not engaging in your with your imagination like your mood is going to suffer your emotions are going to get you know bottled up um so that's another way I kind of like to think about it and reframe it and because I think um you know when when we think about it in terms of like a capitalist society right it's like art is useless in you know in huge quotes because it's you know you don't make money it's it's not it's not a you know especially classical art my goodness um so it's it's about you know being okay with really seeing creativity as a need yeah um that makes us function in in the rest of our life yeah um you know, and what you said about needing that connection, like wanting to reach out, especially during the pandemic when it was like everyone's stuck in their right. own, you know, like you you can't get that connection that you're so used to. Um, uh, and it, it's you said it seems like you're, you're moving into interviews, too. Yes. Uh, and have having different people on. So I will tell you um, that. That was one of the primary drivers to me starting this podcast was um, because uh, when I started it, I was living in China and I felt very removed and cut off from everyone. And I was desiring that connection. And, you know, 150 episodes later, like, so (laughs) I'm just warning you, it might get addictive. Oh, no, I'm absolutely hooked. Like, it's it's all I think about. Yeah. <laughs> is, is you know who do I want to interview? What do I want to ask them? Yeah. Um, because I really think like there's also this sense you know we we are all in this together and um, it's this unusual time in that um, we're all being impacted. Of course, not in the same way, but yeah. everyone's life has changed. Um, and so for me, I, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how is how are these different artists adapting? Um, and what yeah. are they doing? And actually, the the initial idea for the video kind of came to me. Um, I th- think it was maybe in early April. Um, I heard Alan Gilbert's roundtable discussions, his conductor roundtables, and mm-hmm. he was interviewing Esapekka Salonen. And Esapekka Salonen said that, you know, Alan Gilbert basically asked him, you know, how's writing going, <laughs> you know, and, and Esapekka Salon in this video, he's in his, this gorgeous studio in Finland. And there's, you know, this beautiful picture window with the forest outside behind it, you know, and he's, he said, you know, that he basically imagined and fantasized that maybe this would be a time of great creativity um, because we do have this pause yeah. But that it was extremely challenging to stay focused. Yeah. Um, and 
that it was he was said and this again this was like maybe early weeks of April um that he you know it was a it was a very challenging time to be creative and I just remember hearing him say that like this huge weight was kind of lifted off of my yeah. shoulders mm-hmm. because I felt like well if Esapeka Salonen feels that way then it's okay that I feel that way too, you know? Right. And then just sort of realizing that like, maybe I could give that to someone else as well, or by having other, other artists come on and talk about, you know, like Gila Plitman and I interviewed her and she was, you know, saying, don't ask me about what I'm working on. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and she, no, but I mean, she shared a lot of, a lot of the ways she's staying creative. That's, you know, sort of to the side of her main profession, um, yeah, which is yeah. essentially on hold. So that's kind of where my thoughts for Loose Leaf Notebook come from. And cool. So, I do want to kind of develop it into a podcast. I think that's where it's heading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of I thought it might be. When I when I saw that last, uh, that last one, the like the 45 minute one, I was like, ooh, <laughs> she's, she's going long form. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I might have a lot of questions for you after this. But yeah. Well, um if you, you know, for the listener if you're interested in going to check these out, you just have to go to your YouTube page uh which your YouTube username is just uh Julia Adolf, right? Yeah. Yeah. So go check those out, and uh, you've also been posting some of the like clips, some of them on like uh, Instagram, I think too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's talk about your last piece that we're going to talk about. This is Starcross Signals uh, for string quartet, and we're going to be listening to the movement two, uh, which is called Kilo Kilo. And I'm going to start with an odd question, but mm. how did your father inspire this work? Yes. So um, my dad, Jonathan Adolf, he is a painter. And um, he, I mean, he was really my first, my first teacher, you know, along with, along with being my dad. He really mm-hmm. uh, taught me how to be creative. Um, and that was kind of all we did. We would play and make art. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, when I was growing up, he was working on these these paintings that were inspired by Navy signal flags. Um, and he was particularly interested in kind of, you know, first of all, the imagery and the um, like the semaphore um, language and di- different. He was using a lot of different sign language in his um, in his work. And for him, it was sort of about this. um you know, he was interested in looking at communication and um, these images being metaphors for difficulty in communicating and um, trying to be heard, trying to be seen. Um, so I always thought that, so, you know, in our living room, we had some of his paintings and one of them had the Kilo Kilo flag and it, I think it even said Kilo, kilo, which means, or it just said kilo, sorry. Yeah, it's just kilo. Mm -hmm. And then um, what that means in semaphore is I wish to communicate. So that's, you know, with ships in the night um, trying to communicate through flags. That's the sort of ship trying to reach out to the other ship. Right. 
So I, I just always thought that those were, you know, really beautiful pieces, and um, I was intrigued by the sign language, um, and the the two movements kind of um, function as I guess the first movement is sort of a a difficulty in communicating. It's like um, there's miscommunication, there's kind of misfire, there's um, uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. And that movement is called Delta X-ray, which means... I can't remember. What does it mean? <laughs> Wasn't uh, Delta like kind of... what? One of them is... Either Delta or X-ray means like stay away from me or something like that. Right. I think it's like my, I'm compromised in some way. Um, Anyway, I'd have to, it's escaping me right now. But um, the movement we're going to talk about is is, um, Kilo, which is I wish to communicate. And I um, decided to repeat it, Kilo, Kilo, um, because I I like how that sounds. And um, there's also... A lot of sort of um, layering and the strings sort of enveloping each other. So this is um, more of like a you know an embrace or the um, yeah a wish to be together. Yeah, and you know it seems what we were just talking about that that desire to communicate is like you know that is a desire more now than ever. And it's something it's something you crave, yet when another person, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I certainly have, like when another person kind of nears my physical space, I'm just like, no, 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 no. It's like simultaneously you want yeah. that connection, but you're also like fearful yeah. of it, you know? And that's something I don't think that uh, reaction is going to, go away quickly unfortunately it's interesting yeah there's a distrust or a fear as you're saying now yeah because it could even just be like your friends and it's like ah you know it it really it, it really uh things have changed yeah you know it's interesting because i I wrote that, you know, that second movement in contrast to the first. So for me, this this movement, I really wrote from a place of love and joy and warmth. Um, and it felt like that to me, like almost like yeah. it was a love poem. Um, but uh, the Verona Quartet, who who premieres, who premieres, they premiered it at Caramore uh, Center for the Arts, um, two years ago, they shared it recently, like since the pandemic. Um, And the piece just sounded so different to me now. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the emotions of the piece felt completely different to where I was emotionally when I wrote it. And um, I mean, that's, that's one of the wonderful things about music is, you know, you can kind of return to it. And I remember even at the, at the premiere of Caremore, um, someone in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, your piece did not have a happy ending. (laughs) Cause I think I said something in the program notes about how there was like a resolution or like a coming, an embrace, a coming together. And he was like, those ships did not meet at the end. (laughs) 
<laughs> I said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought they did, you know, but, <laughs> but I love that. You know, I love comments like that because, you know, that means he was into it. I he mean, was very disappointed <laughs> by the outcome. My, I know it would, it would have been wrong in the moment, but my natural reaction would have just been, oh, not those two ships. No, you were looking at the wrong ones. Like, like that's so funny. But I mean, like, I even think that, you know, the, the ship metaphor for what we're going through right now, it still holds true. Like, they are communicating at a distance. Yeah. But were they to get close, tiny mistakes could spell disaster for mm-hmm. both. You know, mm-hmm. it's like so much, so many variables that you just have no control over. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but I mean, I I didn't necessarily feel that this was, you know, it was a happy ending or a sad ending. It was just really beautiful. So <laughs> there's that. I mean, <laughs> you know, you in in the in your YouTube series, um, you talk about vulnerability, and I was wondering how did vulnerability shape this movement this is a very vulnerable piece yeah um yeah i wrote it quite quickly actually it's sort of um i'm i'm kind of a slow writer and mm-hmm. i think maybe even similar to i would say the language is even maybe similar to that moment in yeah uh, i think so the viola concerto um where it's, it's very pure, it's very stripped down, um, it's very exposed. And I think that might be where my voice is moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it definitely, it feels, it feels vulnerable to be in that space. Um, but yeah. I, and I only mentioned that I wrote it quickly because I, that means that it, it, it kind of just like, like came out of me, you know, in yeah. a very, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're lucky enough that that actually happens, it's such a good feeling. Like, yeah. um, you know, you can, you can fight for a piece for, for a long, long time. And then you just have something else where it's just like, Oh, and there it is. Wow. You know, um, my, actually the last two pieces I just wrote, they were polar opposites in that way. Uh, the second to last piece just kind of came really fast and it was um, I maybe because I wasn't thinking about it too much, you know, mm-hmm. just like it just it was uh, reflex more than it was research. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the second one, which I had been working on before I stopped to write the second to last one, the, the last piece I just finished, um, man. I fought for that piece for a long time, <laughs> fought with that piece for a long time. Yeah. And at the end of it, I felt like, you know, oh, well, I guess it's done now. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's just like right. it is two completely contrasting uh, experiences with the last two pieces. But anyway, so let's listen to it now. We're going to hear the Verona Quartet. And this is... Uh, the second movement, Kilo Kilo from Starcross Signals. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. 
we're on to the last question, the one that I always ask uh, all the composers and artists that come on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something you wanted to pursue for your life? Well, um, you know, I've always loved being creative, and my parents were very, very encouraging, very supportive. Um, I grew up in New York City. And um, as I mentioned, my dad's a painter and my mom's an architect. And so it was just, you know, music, art, theater, dance everywhere all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, dancing on the table, um, building spaceships out of cardboard. You know, it's just very um, mm-hmm. just playing and creating all the time. And so um, there was never a pressure like to move in a specific into a specific field of, of art Um, although it was definitely, um, heavily implied that, you know, it would be great if I became an artist. Um, (laughs) that's just sort of the way, the way things are and were in my family. Um, and, um. Artists with a big A, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, and you know, in, in New York City, you're surrounded by so much, incredible art and um you know when I was little I was in a my parents put me it it was in like this youth theater company called Tada um and so we we you know so that was a musical theater group and what was fun about it was that the the musicals were um about kids so we weren't Mm -hmm. trying to pretend we were adults yeah they were like kid-centered stories and um and then the audience were kids too, um, so I I really just sort of um, well I don't remember this but apparently I announced that I could write music when I was eight I don't remember this but I or maybe you know I just expressed an interest maybe yeah. <laughs> my dad said I declared it but um, <laughs> you know and then um, they got me keyboard and. Enrolled me in piano lessons. Um, I hated piano lessons because I hated practicing. Right. Really boring. Um, you know, the songs that you learn are boring. Um, so, my, you know, my parents let me quit. And um, I, but I had learned enough that I knew my way around the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I started figuring things out on the piano. So I, I was, you know, definitely born with some kind of ear um, because that that did come naturally, that I could hear something and then recreate it on the piano. Um, and, yeah, I just realized more and more that I really loved writing music. Um, I think, like, the, the first memory I have of writing music is that I actually woke up from a dream um, when I was nine and I had music in my head. This has only happened in my life once since then. So this is like not at all a Yeah, right. <laughs> an, an ongoing thing. It's a very ah, rare the thing. The muse from the dream. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I, I woke up and I had this melody in my head and we already had the piano at that point. And so I, I figured it out. Um and then the second time that's happened in my life was actually right after I moved to Los Angeles, um, which is kind of interesting. But um, yeah, I just, you know, and then, but but I was not classically trained. So I did pop music. I learned how to play guitar. I learned a little music theory, you know, but this was all while acting and, mm-hmm. you know, 
just being a kid and going to high school. And then um, it, you know, sort of my senior year, I, I realized that um, I wanted to expand my language. Like I just felt like I didn't know enough yeah. to capture kind of what I heard in my head and that maybe, you know, so I didn't even think I want to be a composer. I don't think that that ever went through my head. I just knew I wanted to write music and that I wanted to learn more. Um, and so when I went to Cornell, um, you know, that's it's not a music school. It's, it's you know, arts, yeah. liberal arts program. Um, but I went knowing that Steve Stuckey was there and hoping that <laughs> he would take me on as yeah. a student, um, which, which he did. Um, and he's, you know, he was there for the doctoral students. But, um, I mean, anyone who knows Steve knows that he was very, very open and Mm -hmm. welcoming. So he, I had lessons with him once a week and it was through that, that I realized, okay, this is, I'm, I'm entering actually like the classical contemporary music world. And that's kind of where I want to be. Yeah. Well, before we go, can you tell everyone where they could find more of your music and connect with you like on social media or something like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of music, all the music that I can have for free. I have for free um, on YouTube and which again, it's just my name, Julia Adolph, and also on my website, which juliaadolph.com. And yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I guess I'm on Twitter, but (laughs) I don't know how to use Twitter. (laughs) So many like... (laughs) <laughs> um, so, so many people, I, I honestly, I'm, I, you know, I'm this, I was off Facebook for two years. Yeah. I've just recently kind of hate myself, uh, but just recently got back onto it and, uh, I was on Twitter that whole time. And now I think I'm just going to drop Twitter. We'll just like, that's the rule. You only have two at, at a single time. Instagram <laughs> is so fun. Instagram is amazing. The other Instagram's two. Instagram's fun. Yeah. Yeah. The other two just seem to be where all the. Anyway, so (laughs) thank you so much for doing this, Julia. Thank you for having me. It was fun to talk to you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.